Welcome to Acquisition Talk, a podcast on the management, technology, and the political economy of weapon systems acquisition. I'm your host, Eric Lofgren. You can find this podcast and more information, including links, commentary, and articles on acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks for listening. I'm pleased to be speaking with Cynthia Cook and William Shelton. They are both senior analysts with RAND Corporation, and they've written a great new report, a clean sheet approach to space acquisition in light of the new Space Force. And that's what we're here to talk about today. Cynthia, Bill, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. Happy to be here. Thank you. So can you set the stage for us by describing what's the driving logic behind the creation of the Space Force? And where are you guys coming from with this report? We can't speak in depth to the driving logic behind the creation of the Space Force because that wasn't part of the study. We do know that space is is becoming an increasingly contested environment, and that was part of the driving reason to carve the Space Force off into a new and separate service. Our project itself was aimed at taking advantage of that opportunity. A new service means that you can adopt new processes and new approaches for doing some of the necessary functions required for any service. And in one of these is acquisition. So we were approached by the Space Force. They asked us for some big ideas about space acquisition. They specifically wanted a clean sheet approach. They told us to come up with unconstrained big ideas. And you don't often get that opportunity. As we uh, in the acquisition community know, there are a lot of rules and regulations and things that require compliance. And sometimes it gets hard with this opportunity to look at the Space Force and maybe starting with the clean sheet, we could possibly design an approach that would be an improvement over what folks have to do today and still perform the mission expeditiously and effectively. You know, you guys did talk a little bit about some of the things that kind of led to the Space Force in the report. I think one thing that everyone's pretty aware of is the fragmentation, right? There's that report that came out a few years ago that was like, there's 60 or something organizations and they all have some kind of uh, space responsibility and we need to consolidate some of that. And some of that did get consolidated, other parts didn't. But you also talked about this interesting concept of vertical and horizontal synchronization. And this was actually something I did a space report back when I was at Cape a while ago. And we were just like lining up, okay, MUOS, when did they get the satellites up there? When the terminals come online, GPS with OCX and the user equipment is another big one. Can you just talk about what is the synchronization problem and what's the difference between vertical and horizontal? Sure. Yeah. Thanks for that question. So You're right. We talk about it in two different ways, vertical and horizontal. The example that you gave about MUOS and GPS, having the satellite, the launch services, the user equipment, the ground station, that to us is the vertical part. The vertical part, if everything's there, you provide a capability. The horizontal part is the coordination and interaction between different agencies that all participate in the space enterprise. And as you talked about before in the previous example you gave about the 60 different organizations that participate. So there's a lot of folks out there who are interested in space. And the Space Force has been given a large portion of that, but you have the intelligence community, you have the other services, 
you have civilian organizations, you have allies, all those folks play. And so how you interact and communicate between those different entities is what we're talking about when we say horizontal synchronization. The stand-up of the Space Force helps the Department of Defense have a, have a single uh, point of contact, single oversight for most of the DOD space. So that will help with providing a resource to all these other agencies and, and organizations and allies in knowing who to go to if they have particular space questions. Does the Space Force, I guess, I can see how the Space Force is helping solve some of the horizontal. How about the vertical? Because I think SMC, they had all of the GPS pieces themselves. And then we got like the, the GPS three launches years ago, but then the user equipment might, might not come online for years to come. So the, can you just quickly talk about how will the Space Force help with the, the vertical synchronization? So those are good. Those are good points with respect to GPS. And we looked at the vertical synchronization in our report. And we looked at some of the programs and how they had performed in getting things out to provide a capability at a specific time. And part of the issue that we noticed was each of those different pieces that comprise the capability were managed as separate programs. They were entities unto themselves. And while there was some coordination and conversation between the different pieces of the capability, it may not have been the priority of the program managers who are executing those different programs. I remember from my experience as a PM, I was singularly focused on executing my program and what I did to coordinate with other programs was something I did, but if I had a, another priority, that impacted me executing, then that would take precedence over that coordination aspect. That may be what happened in these cases. And so one of the things we talked about in our report was developing a culture of where people were focused on delivering capability as opposed to systems. And that was part of where we were going when we were thinking about the vertical synchronization and some mechanics on how to do that, setting hard milestones, having shorter times between capability deliveries, instead of having a seven-year program where at five years, you have a milestone you have to meet. Look at 18-month centers when you're delivering capability or that people could march along to and go down that path. So those are some of the things that we discussed in our report. Yeah, I want to talk about, this kind of bleeds into this next section here. And I want to talk about some of these kind of big dichotomies that you brought up throughout the paper. And let's start with the first one that I think is to what you were talking about, these stovepipe systems versus enterprise architecture. And of course, we think of the stovepiping as like a complete weapon system, but actually a lot of times these programs actually get broken up into multiple programs. The GPS case is one that you, you just provided. So can you talk a little bit about that? It seems to be a buzzword now in DOD, right? Stovepiping of weapon systems. So can you just talk about that dichotomy? What's sure. the Space Force looking for? I th our belief, at least my belief, is that the Space Force is capability focused. They're trying to get whatever it is that they need as a capability to go help uh, execute national defense, the national mission, th those sorts of things. In our view, as we went through the research, it would be great if you had an overarching 
roadmap, for lack of a better term, that showed how all the piece parts might fit together, how the different systems interact together. And as we were thinking about that, it was that roadmap is really an enterprise architecture. Here's what we want space to be. Here's what we want it to look like. Here's how the different pieces of systems or capabilities, what have you, would be integrated in this overall architecture. And then that would be the driving force. It would be focus on the enterprise and delivering that capability instead of a specific system, a specific satellite or launch service or ground station, what have you. But how does it contribute to the capability that's dictated by the enterprise architecture? And in that way you would come, your focus as a PM would change from my program to how do I contribute to the enterprise and drive the overall capability. Yeah, Bill, let me, let me pile on a little bit to that, which is what you describe is an evolution, if not a transformation in the way program managers think about their responsibilities from delivering successful programs to delivering successful pieces of an architecture. And that's really one of the opportunities that the space, the standup of the Space Force creates, which is setting a new culture where people think about their responsibilities differently and therefore focus on integration issues, not just on the successful delivery of their own program. We have the iron triangle, right? Like cost schedule performance, what's in the APB, go after it. And you program manager, that's your duty. And this is the only amount of money you got to do that. So you got to kind of wave off some of those other things that fall below the line. Like, how do you think about the performance metrics put on the program manager themselves in terms of that iron triangle cost schedule performance? Is there like a, a fourth part of that that's kind of interoperability? Or are you really blowing that thing up and saying, we need to evaluate people in a different way? So it, I think it's more of the latter. As a program manager, you're right. I had the iron triangle. Don't mess with my cost schedule performance. Anybody comes with a new idea, if it's going to make me slip or cost money, thanks for your interest in national defense, but I'm going to go do what I, was, what I got to do to meet my APB. So what we are proposing in our report is you need to grade people differently. You might need a different personnel structure, maybe a different promotion system that looks at things other than what we, what the Department of the Air Force currently does. And as a new service, the Space Force gets to set those parameters, how they want to promote and reward their people and reward those kind of behaviors that would drive you to the, what you're looking for there. I think Bill hit the nail on the head. What you have on your podcast today, Eric, is uh, somebody who's been focusing on the academic research of acquisition for over two decades. And we have someone, Bill, who was an actual program manager in the Air Force, as well as being 10-year-plus researcher at RAND. So when he speaks about what the program manager has to do or say, I truly believe that he is the expert of our team. Yeah, it's funny. When I was thinking what you guys were talking about reminded me of this kind of optimization problem. Actually, that was being discussed at RAND back in the 50s and 60s. And there was a whole debate. Can we actually optimize the portfolio of programs that we have in the Department of Defense and choose the right ones at the lowest cost? And then 
it just turned out like there is no like social welfare function for defense, right? We have to sub-optimize the problem. But then the assumption was if we sub-optimize each program, so each program is optimized in of itself, but uh, not related back to the rest of the force structure, then we're getting to a better place. And I think 50, 60 years on, what we found is actually potentially that stovepiping creates other problems. Like the interoperability problem actually was a real issue. And your sub-optimizations may have led you to programs that are not optimal from the enterprise or the, ar- the enterprise architecture viewpoints. Would you agree with that kind of lineage? So I I've seen efforts at optimizing acquisition and I've, I've read some stuff about you know, how do you optimize army acquisition? Well, the army is a huge service and they, ha- they have to do a lot of different missions. They have to do them successfully. So the systems they have can be very different. Space, the Space Force is a much smaller service. It's much more technologically focused. So we think that there is sort of the potential for movement along a spectrum towards greater optimization in this area than there are in, if you're looking at acquisition more generally in the Department of Defense or even within one of the other services. And to add to that, we're, I don't think we are saying you have to choose missile warning over PNT, over SATCOM. We're, what we're saying is there are probably ways that those they all need launch services. Okay. Yes. All right. What, what's the best way to go do that? They all have some kind of ground station. Maybe there's commonality, maybe there isn't, but think about it. You know, you need those different missions. They're all important, but find ways to take advantage of any commonality. You, you may not want to force commonality. We've seen that in some programs where Hey, we all want to have an airplane, so let's all just buy the same one. You can go back. I mean, the F-4 was like that with the Navy. The Air Force bought it and used it. It was great in Vietnam. We have another airplane now that's a fifth-generation fighter that's out there that a bunch of folks are buying, and it has some scar tissue in it as well. So let's not do it for a reason and fit it into that enterprise architecture. Just don't do it to do it. So I think. Along these lines, you guys also brought up this idea of exquisite systems versus proliferated good enough systems. Can you talk about this, this shift here? Oh, sure. There's exception to every rule, but there, so this is this, we're talking about it in generalities, but of course there's exceptions, but this, there's this idea of traditional space systems as being so expensive and so challenging to get up into space that they have to be perfect. They have to conduct a lot of missions. They have to be these systems that are not only deliver the capability, but they can be in orbit for a good amount of time. The model has changed. The costs of launch have decreased. There's different approaches to uh, managing capability. There's proliferated systems versus integrated systems. So there's really different approaches to the space architecture itself. So that has allowed for different approaches to thinking about what you're acquiring in uh, space. And, and just piling on again, you put up a satellite or you put, you, and it's a billion dollar satellite. Yeah. 
okay, you've got, because they go up at a certain frequency, you, everybody who wants to do something that's related tries to put their requirements on that satellite and it goes up. So now you're creating a death spiral here. If they take long and everybody needs something and they put it on there, the satellite gets more complex then the reason it has to be have even greater mission assurance because, oh my gosh, if it fails, we've lost a billion dollars and all of these people won't get their things. So now I have to be more risk adverse and it just keeps getting worse and worse because fewer satellites are going up. And that impacts cost and schedule. Absolutely. And so if you take this smaller proliferated idea, if I'm putting up hundreds of smaller satellites that network together can perform the mission of uh, a lower number of satellites of, of exquisite design. If one of those fails or the launch doesn't go, I don't lose as much. I'm more resilient. If the warfighter, the operator, the user knows that, okay, I didn't get my stuff on this launch that happened yesterday, but I know another one's happening in six months, that might be able to do what I need, then you you can work with that. So that's how I think about this issue. And I believe that's compatible yeah. with what Cynthia was describing. It, it, it enables a culture change in acquisition. Right, both, both for the, the customer and for the developer. You know, talking about culture changes in acquisition, one thing that you guys brought up in your paper that was interesting was that you traced space requirements to six organizations like Army, Navy, Marine Corps, U.S. Stratcom, Joint Chiefs of Staff, and Space Command. And so there's all these types of places that are bringing requirements to, to the Space Force. But the Space Force has also been talking about, hey, we really want to beef up our commercial, like anything that we can do as a service, let's do as a service. Let's bring in all the commercial new space companies and try to leverage them. But that also potentially has a, a bearing on the acquisition process. So can you talk a little bit about this requirements pull version of acquisition versus a commercial technology push? You know, as you were talking about all the different organizations and then all the opportunities for technology to be inserted into space, I, I go back to that enterprise architecture. You have that vision for how things are going. If industry knows what you're thinking about and your architecture is adaptive enough that it can accept new technologies or adapt to changing threats, then you've got a coordinated way forward to help marshal all of these resources to provide the capabilities. And that was one approach that we put forth in our paper. The requirements are set by the combatant commands. The role of the Space Force as the other armed forces is to organize, train, and equip. And focusing on the responsibility of the Space Force is really to deliver the the best capability at the lowest price in a timely way that they can. And that comes from commercial companies. It's helpful for the commercial companies to understand what the requirements are because they can better focus their own development efforts on supporting those requirements. So a good amount of communication between the requirement setters, between the Space Force, and between the companies that actually are going to be designing and building and delivering these capabilities is very important. One more thing to add to that, um, Cynthia, is that 
sharing of information between the Space Force and the providers industry is key, right? You, you asked about commercial push. One of the things that we proposed in our research was that there be an exchange of people between the Space Force and between industry. Right now, the Air Force has a program called Education with Industry, where they put people in, in companies for a year and they come back and share what they learn. So we were thinking about something a little more focused, almost more like the requirement for military officers to have a joint tour to be promoted to a general officer position. Why not do that in the Space Force across civilians and military and make it a requirement to become a general officer or become an SES in the Space Force is to have them do a, at least an assignment two to three years working in a company and then come back to Space Force and bring those ideas. And you could also reverse that as have people from industry come and work in the Space Force for two to three years before they go back to their company. And that could help inform that technology push and the requirements pull. So Bill, when you're talking, I was recalling one of the other uh, ideas that we just have discussed many times as part of our project and then in the report, which is the somewhat unique nature of technology in the Space Force compared to many of the other services. The Space Force, the, the space operators, the space guardians are going to be operating uh, technological capabilities. They're not engaged in direct hand-to-hand type combat. So what they need is to understand technology. They need, I would under, ideally understand technology management. If there are space operators setting requirements for the future warfighter, understanding the, the path of technology development underway at commercial companies will help them more effectively set requirements in such a way that recognizes the likely future of technology. Sticking with the, the workforce a little bit here, you guys kind of brought up one of my actual favorite quotes from Irving Hawley back in 1964 is buying aircraft. He said, the procurement process itself is a weapon of war no less significant than the guns, the airplanes, and the rockets turned out by the arsenals of democracy. And so you guys had a nice little section there where you're just talking about this idea of acquisition as a support function, which is tends to be how we've always thought about acquisition versus acquisition now as a war fighting capability. And I think you guys were talking about the Space Force as a much more technology heavy service and also being a smaller service. It really needs its workforce to be in tune with the war fighting capability, but also the technology. So can you talk about this? I almost think of it as like a paradigm shift of moving from acquisition as a support function to a warfighting capability and what that means to you guys. Thanks for picking up on that, Eric. That's uh, something we both love talking about. It's always been interesting to see acquisition being characterized as part of the tail, if you will, a support to the warfighter. And it's such a critically important function. though. Especially as the Department of Defense continues an evolution to become being a more technologically 
focused force. It always has been, and uh, that's the continues in that direction. So what does it mean to rethink the cultural understanding of acquisition as a support function versus acquisition as a warfighting capability? There's a lot of ideas that underpin that, but really the primary one is to understand that we can't predict what our adversaries are doing. We have to be able to respond to potential adversaries, to potential threats. And we have to really be able to do that quickly and effectively. And if we think of acquisition as sort of a second ranked capability compared to warfighting, then we might not resource it or think about it in the way that we think it should be considered, which is If you can bring capabilities to the operator at the speed of need, you are part of the response. You are part of the operator's ability to meet potential threats. Yeah, and I'm thinking that if we try to blur the line between what we call operators and what we call acquirers in our document, and... Cynthia alluded to it earlier when she was talking about how the operator has that understanding of technology. The reverse is true. The acquirer has to understand how the technology is going to be used. And in our vision, they're interchangeable, the operator and the acquirer. You potentially looking at a military person, you get committed, we'll talk about an officer for this example. You get commissioned into the Space Force, you're a second lieutenant. And your first job is to go work in a space wing. You're there for two to three years. Yeah, maybe you get another job within the space wing, but you start to understand how the technology is used. And then you've been there for four years or so. Maybe after that, your next PCS, permanent change of station, you go to another organization within the Space Force and you learn acquisition. You learn how to procure the technology, how to develop it. What are your commercial contacts, et cetera? And then you're at your eight-year point, maybe your 10-year point, you're a senior captain, junior major, and then you make a decision. You know, I'm going to become an acquiring expert or an operational expert, but later on in your career, you flip. So in our view, these people, these guardians are essentially warrior engineers. I think we use that term in our report. where they can speak equally about operations and acquisition and can bring both capabilities to bear. And when you've done that, acquisition is no longer support. It's an operational capability that allows you to get things in the field, in operation, and being used right away. Well said. So that that you get at the operationalization of what acquisition as a warfighting capability is. It would require a significant culture change. Yep. The, the space operators will have to really think of understanding acquisition processes and understanding the path of technology as part of their job. Yeah, there's a great quote from the 60s from Werner von Braun, where he basically says, just like a doctor who doesn't you know, see patients anymore, loses his ability to have that ability to be a doctor. If the government organization doesn't have the ability to actually build some pieces of things in-house, then it loses its ability to understand what it's contracting for. 
And so you can't evaluate for what you don't know how to build. And so when you talk about warrior engineers, what do you actually, like, how do you actually see that? Will they be building components or even systems or things like that? Or are you thinking they're going to do the mission integration and execution, and they'll understand enough about the engineering to do the acquiring, but there's not actually going to be like in-house building. How do you think about that? At this point, I think the government, regardless of the service, would be hard-pressed to actually make something as complex as what we have today and go operate. There are probably some niche capabilities throughout the department where that's done, probably in labs where they bend metal and build things and experiment with it. But on a large-scale production, probably not. I don't see that as being in the immediate future for the government. When I think of this warrior engineer, I think of it as the latter part where they're not actually bending metal, but what they're doing is understanding the technology and and how it's used, being a smart consumer so that when they go do talk to industry or they're embedded with industry, they become more aware and have an increased understanding of how it all fits together. So Cynthia alluded to that I was a a program manager in my active duty career, and, and I was. And when I thought I understood the business world, I thought I understood how my industry counterpart did things. And then I retired and I went to industry and I found out how much I didn't know. And I think if I had that education that I got after I retired, while I was on active duty in one of these exchange things, I would have been that much better an Air Force officer than I was. There's also a lot of innovation occurring right now in the commercial space industry. There's competition in new ways. Who would have thought 10 years ago that there would be so much competition in in space launch, for example? One of the benefits of the government not building things is that it means that they are forced to buy things from commercial companies and those commercial companies have the incentive to compete or they're driven by the, the profit motive. And so the goal there is to win larger portions of business by inventing new things and identifying innovations. So that's really the strength of the market. And that is what the Space Force can really take advantage of. And that's actually one of the, the change in the space market is one of the opportunities for the Space Force. And one of the reasons why this is a great time to rethink uh, acquisition. It's part of the reason for the clean sheet. At least I think in AFRL, right, at Kirtland, the Space Vehicles Director, they actually do a lot of good stuff in-house and maybe that's where it should reside. So you guys interviewed a bunch of folks in this space and you guys came out with some themes that were emerging from these. And first, I'd like to talk a little bit about, let's circle back to the architecture front. You talked about articulating it, but at least in my mind, some of the problems is how do we like lock this thing down, create this global architecture, and then expect everyone to kind of fit into that. And then that thing will persist. So how do you allow for architecture to change? The architecture is not intended to be fixed. There is no single space architecture that you can develop to create a vision that's going to drive everything for the next 12 to 15 years. Rather, the space architecture is a pathway or a set of pathways with an overarching structure 
for how systems fit together and interoperate and integrate to deliver capability. The minute you define it with very specific technical specifications, it'll be out of date. So it needs to be flexible. It needs to be adaptable to incorporate new technology to drive in new directions. But the responsibility is understanding that it is a big picture where different capabilities fit in and you are driving towards certain needs and you need to think about it as an integrated whole. So if you look at the DoD architectural framework, I know that's old. They have this thing called an OV1, Operational View 1. It's a high-level system view. And it, it shows if you have a particular capability, how it interacts with all the other different pieces of that capability. In that. And it also shows how it might interact with other systems. So that's a big picture. Who needs to talk to how things work and what the view is? If you take that and expand it, all right, it's going to get pretty unwieldy, you know, when you start trying to put all these architectural artifacts in there and whatnot as you're going through. But if you think along the lines of what Cynthia is saying is it can't be static because we don't have a perfect picture of the future. Remember, the adversary gets a vote, right? There's something new could pop up that you hadn't thought about five years ago or some company X that didn't even exist when you built the architecture comes up with a game-changing idea. And if you just exclude them because it's not in your perfect vision that you came up with five years ago, you're gonna miss out on something that somebody else could take advantage of. So that's why we're using terms like roadmap. That's why we're using terms like the way forward, that it has to have some flexibility in it. It can't be completely rigid, but you can use it to help drive your decision-making as to how you go forward in the acquisition and the acquiring of, of uh, systems and capability. Yeah, I, I think related to that, what you were just talking about, Cynthia, I think another aspect is portfolio management, which allows for that kind of a little bit more open-endedness, right? And you guys were talking about, and we've heard about the Space Force wanting to move to portfolios for last couple, of, since at least last year when they came out with their big report. You guys mentioned we want to move from program managers to capability managers. Can you put that all together? What is the capability manager? What is the portfolio? How does that all actually work on the ground? We were trying to get away from the stovepipe systems that we talked about before. Instead of focusing on the satellite or the launch vehicle or what have you, you would focus on what's the capability that all these components together are supposed to bring. And that capability manager would be able to work with those different piece parts to make sure that the capability is delivered as opposed to one component of the capability. And so if you're thinking from, you mentioned portfolio management, if you're thinking along those lines, then wouldn't it be great if you're, you have this portfolio of SATCOM and I know that I have to provide I'm responsible for delivering this the SATCOM capability to the United States through the Space Force, then it would be great if I had the funding flexibility, like one big program element, that I could reallocate funds to different pieces of the capability to make sure things were delivered on time. So if you're running launch services as one program element, you're running the satellite development as one program element, 
you're run, running the user equipment and the ground station, each as separate program elements. If one gets behind and one's too far ahead, how do you move resources from one to the other so everybody's at the same time? You could do that with this funding flexibility and this merge program element that we were recommending in the report. And as a portfolio manager or as a capability manager, you would be thinking across those and look at it as an entity as opposed to different components. The portfolio manager, that would be like the senior material leader or would that be at like a PEO level? It could be. The closest thing that, I, and I'm hesitant to use the, the term like senior material leader and program executive officer because we're not, we don't want to constrain the space force to the construct. We're thinking your capability manager would probably be a, a, a relatively senior person who had a lot of experience, who knew how things worked, and they would be working with other folks within their organization to help bring things along to develop, to provide the capability. It could be a PEO like, and the people that work for them are senior material leaders. I don't know, but I wouldn't want to put those labels on it now to constrain people's thinking about how they would go forward. So Bill, that gets at the, the fundamentals of our project and brings us back to what we were asked to do. The Space Force did not constrain us in any way. They said, we want your best research on what this potential clean sheet could look like. They wanted big ideas. They wanted us to push the envelope of what acquisition could be. Implementation is a separate issue. That is, that was not part of this project. We were really focusing on putting forward big ideas for them. Maybe this was the, gets to the specific implementation, but I was wondering, what are the, the portfolios you were thinking? I think the Space Force came out with like missile warning and base support to operations such as COM and NAV and space domain awareness. Like these were the types of things that they were throwing out last year, at least in their alternative acquisition report. Are, are those the types of portfolios that you think make sense? Or how do you think about what is like the overarching classification structure that you think makes sense? The department has been looking at portfolio management for a long time. They, if you look at how OSD thinks about it, they came up with multiple different portfolios. Then there was one, we could look at it as a kill chain. There were other ones by commodities. And I like what you were describing there. Do it as a capability portfolio. So missile warning and that view makes perfect sense as a capability, as a portfolio, excuse me. But at some point, you have to have those different capabilities have to understand how they interact and how they would use or require input or provide output to other capabilities. SATCOM doesn't work in a vacuum, sorry, no, no pun intended. Missile warning doesn't either, right? They all share things, information and whatnot between them. So the capability managers, the portfolio managers would also have to be, have some understanding of how they interact with their counterparts. Definitely. And one thing that you guys said that was interesting was that you were thinking like these capability managers should be having control of the end-to-end -end process. Sometimes people call it like a cradle to the grave kind of things. Right. I wonder how does that kind of align with this also idea that the Space Force has been moving towards enterprise tools, like obviously launch 
you wouldn't want each capability manager to own their own launcher potentially do you i don't know like how do you think about what where does end to end start and end because it seems like the same with the capability portfolios like we want a coherent capability portfolio but we recognize everything is intertwined how do you think about end to end versus leveraging enterprise tools yeah i i hear where you're coming from if i'm responsible for the PNT. Everybody needs launch services. So what's the best way to do launch services? Does everybody do their own? That's your question. And I have to be honest, I haven't thought about that deeply. On the surface, it seems to me that there are some real benefits to having a predefined launch capability that you design towards or as requirements go, launches may be thought of as can I say launch as a service where me as the capability manager, I say I have a requirement that I have to get this amount of uh, weight mm-hmm. into Leo or Geo or whatever. And I go buy that as a service and I buy it either commercially or I buy it from a government provider. So if it's something as ubiquitous as launches, maybe you just buy that as a service and um, you focus on other things. So I got to admit, you know, like the idea of funding flexibility to capability portfolios or this type of portfolio concept, I think is probably one of the biggest things. Like we, don't, we haven't had that since the 50s or before with the per- planning program budgeting execution system. It has been focused on stovepiped weapon systems. And a lot of that is also transparency and insight and control by folks in oversight, but also in, in Congress and the like you know, this capability portfolio concept can really unleash a lot of the cultural aspects and a lot of the other things that you guys were talking about in terms of like architecture. What kinds of approaches to data transparency, you know, might make this actually feasible from a stakeholder perspective? Because if you do have these portfolios, you do empower people, then it's, we don't know where we're going. I don't have this thousand line IMS integrated master schedule that tells me exactly what you're planning to do. And then I can hold you accountable to that for cost of schedule growth and this, that, and the other. So how do you think about that kind of transparency and what will bring Congress along to say, yeah, Space Force, we're going to give you a shot. We're going to give you some trust and some, and we'll put some boundaries on it, but we'll let you go for that. What, what needs to happen? So I think you hit on it earlier in your comment about data transparency. People tend to think of data as theirs. The Air Force thinks its data is, it owns its data. The PEO thinks he or she owns their data. The program manager owns his or her data. And I think for this to really work, data needs to be considered an enterprise resource. I know I use, we use the term enterprise a lot, but at this point, a program manager an oversight person, they should have access to the same data. It should be open. It should be common. It should be in a data structure that is easily understood and accessible. And I'm not saying that you give every congressman or every congressional staffer the same exact data as you give to the PM who's, or the capability manager who's doing that work. But if they know they can go in at some level and see in real time what's happening, then that visibility is there. You can build that trust and you will consequently have more leeway to go do the things that you need to go do because you're bringing your oversight 
people along with you. You need to think of them as partners as opposed to overseers. Yeah, so we all elected our, our members of Congress to, to be our representatives, to balance the executive branch of the government and the Supreme Court. We have three uh, branches of government. So what is the role of Congress in, in this and what would they be giving up if you have you know, a much smaller number of funding lines? Right now, all the different programs give them insight into spending and so forth. So they have metrics on a program level. If you were to fund in a different way, how could you support Congress in their oversight responsibilities by giving them metrics so that they can understand the progress towards the delivering of capabilities that are key to the nation's defense. So that's really the key question to me. Does it need to be done by having all these different separate funding lines, or are there other ways of providing data so that they can execute their national responsibilities? Yeah, this seems to be like, this is going to be one of the crucial questions going forward. And, you know, I think one one of the challenges here is when we move to the current construct with APBs came a little bit later, but like the kind of cost schedule KPP idea in the sixties, it was really that financial measure, like lock down the technical baseline. And then it's easy for me to judge your uh, progress and performance. Just what's the cost in the schedule variation to that baseline and which of those KPPs are slipping or not. But if I have this kind of more open-ended roadmap, now it's going to be like, I'm going to have all these metrics about what I'm doing and what I'm spending on. But because there's no like baseline that I said I was going to do something 10 years ago, like it requires the, a lot more effort on the oversight to understand what is the technology? What is the operational context? What are like the contextual things going on here that I can't get out of a financialized kind of metric that tells me about execution, but it doesn't tell me about value or capability. Do you, do you think about those types of things? Absolutely. The challenge here is that if you set a technical baseline in stone and manage to it, you're going to be delivering yesterday's capability. You need to approach this in a more flexible way. Not just yesterday's, last decades. (laughs) So you talk about how it could be more difficult for the oversight community. And yeah, that's true. But you know what? It's going to be harder for the people who are executing the work as well. I grew up in, like you said, the Iron Triangle, cost, cost, schedule, performance. I grew up with program elements. And I got my PMD, my program management directive. And this is, if it wasn't in there, that was my contract to go execute. And now we're asking program managers to think differently. You don't have those guardrails anymore. It's saying something is in and out of scope gets a little tougher, right? You don't have as much structure. So you're looking for a different kind of program manager. You're looking for somebody who is is flexible, who is risk tolerant, who can do the calculus about, all right, does it make sense for me to try to develop this state-of-the-art widget? And if it fails, what do I have as a backup? And can I run those two things simultaneously? You're thinking differently than we have in the past. And there are pieces of the department that are thinking that way now. 
A lot of them are in these rapid capability offices, how they go forward. They get stuff done fast. They follow the FAR. They, they execute. They are, they are legal. They are doing everything correctly, but they get it done quicker. How do they get it done quicker? They have direct access to decision makers. They have the ability they, to put things on contract quicker because they have their own contracting officers. They have people who think differently, who are who take those calculated risks as opposed to the, oh, if I go do that, then I have to explain this to this person and that person is just easier for me to go do this other process because it's the path of least resistance. So you're talking about a different kind of person in an RCO. Those folks are interviewed to go there. They are selected, they're handpicked. We're saying, you know what? The Space Force is small, what, 16,000 people maybe, okay? Why can't you do something like that to get those kind of people to develop that kind of culture and to drive it from the top down and the bottom up? And then you'll make it as a place where, wow, I really wanna go work for the Space Force. They're doing some really neat stuff and that'll be your own recruitment thing. You're gonna be turning people away. Yeah, so Bill described change that is complicated and challenging. And Eric, you earlier said that this would be, be hard and would indeed require a number of people to approach and think differently, approach acquisition differently. So yes, we're not denying that it will be challenging. We're not denying that it will require some significant efforts to implement change. But, but it could be fun. It could be it's fun. Gonna... You know, there's no alternative. The alternative yeah. is that we're not delivering the best capability, <laughs> that we don't have what we need. And we that is not a good option. Yeah. I'd rather take on the challenge to transform acquisition than at the front end say it's too hard. Is it going to be hard? Yes. Are there mistakes going to be made? Probably. Yeah. Is it going to be an evolution? Absolutely. The journey of a thousand miles starts with the first step. To use an old phrase. Yeah. I can picture the Space Force commercial now where you have a warrior engineer or a guardian engineer breaking the shackles of the Iron Triangle <laughs> and expressing their creativity and skill and contributing to national security and doing that potentially at a much more junior grade, being able to contribute as a lieutenant, as a captain, rather than like having to wait until you're like an 05, 06, until you're given these kinds of hefty responsibilities. It would be definitely, I'm with you guys, and it's going to be a big change. And they talked about, right, the Space Force, all the leaders, when they were talking about, we need a Space Force, it seemed like the thing that they kept saying was, it's really about a culture change. But of course, I feel like there's this chicken or the egg thing with the culture change. We need the culture to change in order to do better within the regulations, but we also need the regulations to change in order to unshackle those people so that they can feel like they're expressing themselves and doing things. So it's like, do you have to do those simultaneously or is there like one, like one you can start with and then pull the other? First, talk about acquisition. You have the FAR, the Federal Acquisition Regulation. Okay. Which is intended to be flexible. And is flexible. If you, if you look at 5,000 and its iterations, all the stuff you want to do, I believe you can do within the reg. If you're willing to tailor, if you are willing to go ahead and say, I need to do this, but I don't need to do that. And the alternative acquisition framework 
offers six pre-tailored pathways for program managers to take. In the adaptive path. Yeah. Is there going to be a space one? I, I heard there's rumors of a space uh, pathway that might be in the works. Yeah, <laughs> I, I heard that too. And I would support a space pathway. And the way I look at those pathways and the adaptive acquisition framework is they are pre-tailored approaches for those specific commodities. And if I'm thinking about a space acquisition pathway, I would suggest they would need to have subsets of it. One for like satellites, one for ground stations, for the different elements of a capability. I don't know if one pathway would, because... If you look, there's a software pathway now, right? There's a major acquisition pathway. There's the middle tier, there are services, mm-hmm. and there's one more, I can't remember. Urgent, and then there's the business. Mm-hmm. The best business systems and the ur- urgent. But you could look at space and space could pick up elements of yeah. all those other pathways. Or some capabilities could be bought using those other pathways. R- right. So this pathway doesn't have to limit. So my only concern with the pre-tailored ones is that people may not go far enough. I could get the major acquisition pathway and just take it and then go with it. Or I could take it and I could look at it critically against what I'm doing and see, can I tailor that pre-tailored one even more to be applicable to my circumstance? And then I need people in oversight positions to buy off on it. So that's part of the culture chain is people should expect you to tailor and tailoring should be the norm as opposed to the, leaving it as the, the status quo. And the question should not be, why did you tailor, but why didn't you tailor? Why didn't you tailor? Yeah, you really mean you had to do all 67 of those documents to get mm-hmm. to your milestone? Really, what are you using them for? So anyway, that, that's kind of where my brain is on this. So I want to move on to the discussion on a single space acquisition decision maker. And I think you brought this up, especially with the the space RCO, right? They have quick access to the top. But of course, usually that concept doesn't really scale to everybody, right? Not everybody can be a cobbled program. So can you just describe what were you thinking with the, the single space acquisition decision maker? And how does that kind of differ from, I think, of course, in the next year or two, we're supposed to get a service acquisition executive and Kendall might actually accelerate that for space. How would that be different than what's already being thought of or in motion? So when we were going through this research, there was a lot of discussion on a single uh, space acquisition executive. I, mean, I know it was in the NDAA, but there was a lot of discussion internal to the uh, Department of the Air Force. So we stayed out of that. But as we looked at it, we thought if you're going to go down the space force in the way that we are thinking, and you're going to have that culture, and you're going to have the enterprise architecture, and you're going to be thinking differently, wow, it would really make sense if you had a single acquisition belly button that could drive that behavior and drive acquisition in space. Now, it could be one person for both services in the department, That might be hard to switch your brain off back and forth between the two organizations and culture, but we definitely think that the person who does that space acquisition decision maker, and it could be this, I guess it's SQ now is Mm -hmm. what they're talking about. It could be that person, but they need to be fully imbued in the culture of the Space Force and execute in that manner. 
you really are thinking of it as just like, you guys call it a head of space acquisition. And you were just using that term because you, you didn't want to make it exactly the same as what was going on, but you right. talked, yeah, generic version. Right. Yeah, it was exactly generic. right. And great. And does, does the Space Force have its own head of contracting activity right now? Or do you know where that's at? Yeah, no, I don't know where that is. There was discussion about contract authority and where that resides and the different procurement activities that would need to go along. I don't know what the Space Force is doing right now with respect to contracting or if they're going to have their own contracting shop. I know if I were running the acquisition for the Space Force, I would want to have a contracting organization that was responsive to the way I thought. When the Space Force was coming up, there's a lot of, you know, parallels drawn to the Marine Corps because they're both services within a larger department. In what way do you think the Space Force as a service within the Air Force should be similar to the Marine Corps as a service within the Navy? And then in what ways should it really be different? That's a great question. And it makes me reflect on my understanding of the Marine Corps generally and all the wonderful Marines that I know, which is the Marine Corps seems to emphasize a particular warrior culture. Every Marine is a rifleman. They have just an amazing and unique and very strong culture. What we're suggesting for the Space Force is something similar. The Space Force needs its own culture within the Department of the Air Force, just as the Marines have their own culture within the Department of the Navy. But what's different is the cultures are different. Marines are on the ground engaging in direct combat and guardians could have a culture more focused on being warrior engineers. So those different, the different particulars of those cultures may drive the, the services, unique tools, processes, procedures that are designed at supporting their unique cultures. And, and from an infrastructure point of view, so the Marine Corps, they don't have their own chaplain service. They use Navy chaplains. Okay, that makes sense. Why would the Space Force go ahead and do something like that? If the Marine Corps, I don't think they have their own financial management system. They use what the Department of Navy has. They, but the Marines have a different promotion structure than, mm -hmm. the, than the Navy does. The Marines have their own Marcorps SISCOM, right? Their own acquisition organization that does Marine specific stuff They even though they use things from, I guess it used to be Spayware. I don't know what it's called anymore, but I, I would see the Space Force as looking at the Department of the Air Force and seeing what can I use that is not specific to my culture and getting that from the department and things that I need to have to reinforce my culture, support my culture, help me execute according to my culture, like their promotion system, like their personnel system, like their assignment process, those sorts of things, I think the Space Force should own them. And acquisition would be one of those things, right? Because that's gonna be culture dependent. So that's, at this moment, I think that would be my decision process is 
do I need it to reinforce and execute according to my culture, or can I get that from somewhere else? Part of it is also that the Space Force has a very small service. And if we think about what the members of the service do and, and what they would benefit from being, for example, and this is just an example, because I don't know what the Space Force has decided to do with this particular career field. Let's say you're a security forces person and you're, you're guarding. The Space Force doesn't have a lot of different bases. So you're, you would be in a small community. You would probably have fewer training options. You would have fewer promotion options. It may be better for you to be part of a larger department of the Air Force community so that you could be a a better airman with a broader set of colleagues and opportunities than you could if you were in a much smaller community in the Space Force. So it's not only managing what's best for you, it's also thinking about, do I really need this person to contribute to the, or this function to contribute to the culture, to execute the mission or so forth, Or would it be better to have those people be managed as part of a larger capability owned by the Department of the Air Force? In your clean sheet approach to the Space Force, it just seemed like there's a lot of just good things there that are just generally good. So when you're applying this to the Space Force, do you think it like is uniquely good for the Space Force as a service? Or do you think the Space Force is good for piloting these things, but ultimately the rest of the department should follow along? with a lot of these uh, recommendations that you're making. Eric, we had this discussion on our research team about is, is this good just for the Space Force or could it could these things be transmitted to the larger department of the Air Force and then maybe even to DOD at large? And I think we came down on both sides of the fence on this. The answer is yes and no. Yeah, <laughs> because the Space Force is small, you could try some unique things here and see how well it works, and then see how you would scale it. Like the portfolio management approach Mm -hmm. could, if it works for the Space Force and you can satisfy oversight, then is there a way way to scale that across the Department of the Air Force and then across the Department of Defense? That could really be a positive. But there are things that may not be scalable. The promotion system, or Mm -hmm. for instance, may not may not work. It works for the Space Force, but it may not necessarily work for other parts of the department. And jumping in here, our idea for the Space Force is warrior engineers. And that may not be appropriate for, say, Army missions. If you're in uh, uh, combat arms or, you know, artillery or one of the Army combat-focused career fields, you may not want to spend half your career working in acquisition. It, it is likely not appropriate for you. So some of what we're talking about is scalable and transferable and others not. Should all the services be cognizant of what's happening in industry and to understand the, the trends of technology development? Yes. Does that need to be everybody in every service? Well, probably not. I agree with you there, especially on the warrior engineer part. But, you know, when I hear army folks talk and they're like, we do soldier centered design now and we really integrate um, the soldiers into the acquisition process. And it might not be the exact same thing you're talking about, but I think everybody's getting on that train. And of course, the army is 
probably less technology focused. So maybe it's not every you know enlisted person is taking part in this. It seems like there's a lot of goodness there that could be translated elsewhere, especially the portfolio management stuff, I, I must say. But of course, bureaucracy hacking is super hard. So right. I know you, you talked about we weren't supposed to get into implementation, but it'd be really great to see these things filter through. So how do you think about getting what you're talking about into the real world and then into action? You know, we, we also had this discussion <laughs> during our research and that's why we added an entire chapter on change management. A, a lot of the stuff that we discussed necessarily was different than the status quo. And you're going to have a lot of people who are resistant to change. And there are going to be some people who embrace it and want to get after it. And you've got to take all those folks into consideration. And you're thinking about change management. you got what, like the top 10 or 20% are disciples are on board. You've got 20% that no matter what you do, they're just not going to buy it. They just refuse. And then you've got the 60% in the middle, the gray area that you need to sway. You need to think about that and make hard choices. That bottom 10 or 20%, you just got to let them go. It may be, hey, you're not right for the Space Force. We appreciate the service you've had for it with our country. And there are other opportunities for you Absolutely. and we'll help you find them, right? You let them go. The, you focus the 20% at the, who are on board or gung-ho, they're your leaders and that you use them to help pull in that 60% that's in the middle and help them see the way forward. But you're right. Hacking your bureaucracy is hard and the government personnel system makes it difficult to release people, but it does not make it hard to reassign people. And you can give them other opportunities where they would be happier and probably would be more successful. So that's part of it. And the other part of it is really what you celebrate. You know, one of the things we talked about in our report is taking risks. And in order to take risks, you have to be tolerant of failure. Well, no, no program manager wants to oversee a failure. That is not, that is not good for the career. So how do you counter a risk-averse culture? Maybe you celebrate somebody who took a bold risk, not for foolish reasons, but for reasons of technology Technology moved in a different direction or a bold experiment didn't pay off. You can celebrate their experimentation. You, can, you don't celebrate the, the failure, you celebrate the risk they took. And what you learned from that risk. And what you learned from that risk. And if, it's, if the person did it in a thoughtful way, maybe they should be promoted over somebody who oversaw more successful, but more risk averse uh, program. Getting the rewards seems to be a hard one, right? Like it seems like there's often in the, these bureaucracies, the asymmetry of like punishment versus reward. I don't get rewarded for doing the good thing and, and it entails risk, but if I do the bad thing, then I know someone's going to come down on me. <laughs> so right. exactly. it's hard to change that. Unfortunately, that 20, that bottom 20% that never wants to change, they always seem to be the ones that like outlast the the 20% that want to change. They can stick to it and then like they'll win over time. So hopefully the Space Force being a new organization is able to really drive that culture change 
And I think you, you guys had a, some great recommendations to help move them along the way. So as we wrap up here, is there anything else you'd like to leave our audience with? You know, the, the exciting opportunity that the Space Force off, offers to do something different and new and effective and the cultural change that will entail. Make it just, uh, it's an exciting opportunity and a tremendous challenge. And yeah, and I'll, I'll second that, Cynthia. And I, I think the, the Space Force has a real opportunity here. It just doesn't come around that often. <laughs> right? The Air Force was the last new service. So having this opportunity and for the folks who are guardians and the folks who want to be guardians and the companies that want to work with them, they could really be instrumental in affecting change and actually changing the shape of the way the military and the U.S. actually looks at a lot of these problems. So they have this opportunity and I hope they appreciate it. Cynthia Cook, William Sheldon, thanks for joining me on Acquisition Talk. As our pleasure. Thank you. (laughs) Bye-bye. This concludes another episode of Acquisition Talk. If you have comments, interview recommendations, or just want to chat, please contact us at acquisitiontalk.com. Thanks again, and until next time.